0: A science story, huh? Is NYU a scientist? uh, I felt 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 right. And I I just thought, well. It It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week, both our stories deal with that unpleasant physical sensation known as pain. Pain is actually really, really strange. Sure, it's an indispensable tool for survival. Like, if you touch a hot stove and it hurts, you're obviously more likely to remove your hand and keep it from turning into a charred mess. And in an ideal world, we'd only experience pain if it was related to actual physical damage to our body. But what's wild is that science has found that people can still feel pain even if there aren't any pain receptors. People who have had their limbs amputated will report feeling pain in their missing arm or leg. It's called phantom pain. But all that is to say, pain is notoriously subjective. And research has found that biological and psychological factors influence how we experience pain and how our nervous system reacts to harmful stimuli. In other words, what hurts for me might not hurt for you. Although, I'm pretty sure if what happened with our storytellers happened to me or you, we'd also be in a lot of pain. Our first story is from Renee Joshua Porter. It was recorded in the before times in October 2018 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was under the radar.
2: it's August 1991 I'm 25 do the math I'm nine months pregnant I'm five days past my due date I'm married I live in Brooklyn it's 90 degrees it feels like 106 I'm angry. I'm really angry. And I force Keith to take me for a walk. I pride myself on being pretty well-read. I know more than the average Joe. I don't think I'm a know-it-all, but most people do. (laughs) I beg him to take me for a walk. We're walking until I go into labor. (laughs) We're not going back into that apartment. So we walk and we walk and we walk. I'll tell you a little bit more about me. I very well read when it came to health. I knew about the episiotomy. I knew no one was gonna snip the down under. I knew about the epidural. There would be no injections in my spine. I knew about Lamaze because I took it. I couldn't convince Keith for me to give birth inside of the bathtub, but I'm informed. I'm informed. We walk, we walk, we walk, 40 minutes in. A little bit afterwards, my water breaks. We're excited. I'm in labor. I'm in labor, but the water is brown. Meconium, I had read about meconium. When the baby passes his bowels in utero, it can go into fetal distress. Keith, get me to the hospital. Get me to the hospital now. He flies me downtown to Brooklyn Hospital. They grab me. They strap me flat down onto the bed. They hook up the fetal monitors and at that point they tell me don't move. I'm sorry. (laughs) Can you repeat that please? Don't move. How is that supposed to work? I don't, I don't quite get it. I'm in labor. There's a lot of pain and you're telling me not to move. You can't move Mrs. Porter because if you move, you can put the baby into fetal distress. You have to stay still. So I'm strapped to the bed, hooked up to the fetal monitor, and I start to get hysterical. The pain is increasing. The pain is increasing, but something strange happens. I start feeling these Ginsu knives in my back. And I start to get hysterical. My spine is separating. Um, excuse me. My spine is separating. Ah, uh, hello? Hello? I'm sorry you have to stay still. Renee, just relax. This is Keith, everything with Keith. Just, just relax, stop, you're being selfish. Stop moving. Stop, st- stop moving? Yes, yeah, stop moving, you're being selfish. Think about the baby. What do you mean think about the baby? Get out of my face. Just get out of my face, all right? Why don't you just move? Get out of my face. At that point, my mother is there, and I start going ballistic because I'm having labor pains. Along with the labor pains, I'm having the knife stabbing in my back. Nobody's helping me. I'm strapped to the bed, keeps telling me not to move. And now I just start, I say, you know what? Let's just start cursing everybody out. <laughs> Let's curse everybody out. F you, F you. <laughs> You can kiss, you can kiss. It's on. And now, at this point, I'm really mad because Keith, he's telling me I'm being selfish, and my mother is telling me to pray. (laughs) I don't want to pray. I don't want to pray. So we're going back and forth. And at this point, Keith and my mother are at the door, and they decide nobody wants to talk to me and i'm watching them no you go in no you go in no you talk to her i'm not talking to her daws i'm well i'm not talking to her either cuz i'm going to slap the shit out of her that's why i'm not talking to her so, and they're back and forth and i'm upset and then finally keith lost the debate so he comes back over and my back is separating and the pain in my spine is getting more severe and it's a stabbing and it's a stabbing and it's a stabbing And the nurses are doing their drive-bys. They come by. They look to see if I'm still. They look to hear and check on the baby's heartbeat, and they're gone again. No one's explaining. All they're telling me, Mrs. Porter, don't move. And at this point, I knew the thing about the Ginsu knives in the back, it wasn't in the book. It wasn't in the manual. It wasn't in the chapter with the Lamaze. It wasn't with the episiotomy. It wasn't with the epidural. What is this? You know what it is? I'm going to die. That's what it is. So I look at Keith and I'm crying now, I'm hysterical, Keith. Tell the baby about me, please. Tell her I was good. Tell her I'm kind. Tell her I'm a good person because I'm not gonna make it. And he's looking at me and he's okay, Renee, and his eyes are glossy. And he says, Renee, but, but, but can you just stop? What are you talking about? Can you please stop talking? Your breath is kicking. (laughs) Is it really? Yeah, it's really bad.
0: Oh,
2: I'm sorry. Maybe because my throat is dry. Can I get some water? No, you can't have anything by mouth. I hate you so much. (laughs) God, I just wish you'd die. <laughs> and I'm cursing and he leaves. And at this point, I feel totally abandoned. So I'm like, I'm, it's in now. I'm out, I'm cursing again, I'm cursing the nurses, somebody help me, please somebody help me. My back is separating. At this point I had labeled it, I had labeled it spinal detachment. <laughs> Because that's what I do. I make things up, right? It's spinal detachment. I'm experiencing spinal detachment. And I'm cursing. And I said, I know I'm going to die. And I'll never get to see my baby. And I'm being punished for all the bad things I've just done in my life. And I'm carrying on and I'm carrying on. And this woman walks into the room. A middle-aged black woman, kind of thick. And she walks in. And she says to me, in a thick Jamaican accent, Mrs. Porter, Mrs. Porter! You know why they call it labor? Because it's work, now shut up! <laughs> shut your out! You can't sit in here and cuss everybody out like this. It's labor, behave yourself. <laughs> Just behave your damn self. And at that point, I just, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm the five-year-old caught with the cookie. I'm sorry I hurt so bad. Where hurt? It hurts so Show me where it hurt. Right here, right here, right here. Come over here. Come on, let me rub it for you. Come on, come on. It's It's all right, it's all right. You're gonna be okay, okay? All right. It happens sometimes. Some women get back labor. Back labor? Back labor, yes. Sometimes the baby the baby's situated and the baby push against your back, you get back labor. Is the head of the baby push on the spine? I not know. I think I die. And she's like, you can't behave like this. You can't be cussing people out and carrying on like a mad woman. <laughs> All right? Tearing up the place. Come on now. Enough is enough. I'm sorry. (laughs) I later learned that back labor is actually when the baby is face up and is pushed against the spine and the worst position to be in is flat on your back. It actually prolongs the labor and intensifies the whole process. Nobody told me that except for the nurse. So nine hours later, after the episiotomy, after the epidural and the drugs, I had an eight pound, six ounce girl, 23 inches long, healthy, but I was traumatized. (laughs) I waited like six years. And had another baby, not on purpose, <laughs> just happened, you know, Yeah. You know. that one, no back labor. I just labored from one day to the next, but no back labor. Five years later, I had another baby. <laughs> I know I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> this time though, I decided that the first baby, who was now 11, would be in the room with me (laughs) when I had the third one. That was a very zen environment. I had music playing. I had a coach to help me pray. I was into praying by then. It was very zen, and everyone was trying to tell me, Renee, don't you think this is too traumatic for her? She's 11, don't you think she'd leave her there? Don't leave her right there. She's not moving. Look, look. I thought it was very important that she learned, first of all, how to create her own environment to give birth, how to become her own advocate, and it was a perfect way to ward off teen pregnancy. (laughs) Thank you.
1: That was Renee Joshua Porter. Renee is a writer, teaching artist, and performer. She is also the founder and executive director of the Burning Bush Family Foundation a not-for-profit organization dedicated to providing educational and recreational programs for children and families through the performing arts. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. Next week, we'll be in the UK, in London, in New York City, and Boston. You can check out storyclatterorg shows for tickets. And if you enter promo code SCIENCESTORY at checkout, you'll get 10% off your ticket. That's S-C-I-N-C-E, STORY all one word, for a 10% discount just for being a podcast listener and because obviously we love seeing you at our shows. If you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storyclutter.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Also, for more updates and cool behind-the-story pictures and other awesome content, you should follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org. Also, if you're just playing old tired of listening to ads on this podcast, you can also sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Our Patreon supporters receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and 6-1-since-that-matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, our second story is from Gretchen Duma. It was recorded in February 2022 at Greenwood Storefront Studio Space in Seattle. The theme that night was Revelations.
0: When I was in college and didn't have anything to do on a Friday night, I would head down to our dorm's TV room with all the other sci-fi geeks to watch the latest episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. Now, this show's premise was that its hero, Steve Austin, was a NASA test pilot who had been in a horrific accident. All the best scientific and medical minds had descended upon him to put it back together like Humpty Dumpty, only with uh, uh, futuristic wiring and bionic parts, and in the process, they gave him some superpowers. A couple of seasons later, his fictional girlfriend got her own TV series, The Bionic Woman. Let's hear it for equal opportunity cybernetics. <laughs> uh, this was 1974, and I loved sci-fi, but I didn't take any of it too seriously. I mean, sure, there were external prostheses for a- accident victims and amputees, and organ transplants were becoming, if not routine, at least achievable. But uh, part robot, part man with superpowers in real life, <laughs> not likely. My attitude towards replaceable parts changed radically some years later when my knees started to give out. I discovered slowly, by day by day, little by little, that I was going to be walking with pain, deep, excruciating pain. Getting in and out of a dining room chair was a major ordeal, and using a public bathroom? Forget about it. I mean, you never know how low toilet seats can get until you have to sit on one while your knees are giving out. And of course, nobody wants to hear crying and moaning coming from the stall next to them. <laughs> uh, I, uh, got so, it got so bad that I started to walk with a cane. And going to the grocery store became this crazy juggling act between me, the cart, and the cane, where the cane usually ended up between the wheels of the cart or I would lose my grip and it would fly down the aisle towards some unsuspecting fellow shopper. It was also embarrassing. I was embarrassed to go out with my friends because I felt like I was the feeble old grandmother that somebody had unwillingly had to bring along. And mostly, I was terrified. I was terrified that I was going to lose my ability to perform. (laughs) This was never more true than when I was cast in a play in a leading role, which, by the way, never happens to character actors, of which I am one. We always get the secondary parts. But it was a leading role in an excellent comedy, and I was so elated, and I was so worried because I knew it was a highly physical show, and it was being done in Tacoma, which is about an hour's drive from Seattle, That meant a rather long commute both pre- and post-show, but it was a leading role, so of course I took the part. And I did the entire show on Vicodin. (laughs) I managed to time my uh, pain relief because I had to enter this particular show coming down a flight of stairs and sword fighting, no less. The pain relief would hit just when I needed it, but not enough to obliterate my memory of my lines or my blocking. Then I'd grab a big bag of ice and I'd plop it on my knee for the long drive home. This whole episode was the thing that finally spurred me to consult an expert, a sports medicine doctor and an orthopedic surgeon who had become quite renowned for dealing with the knees of Seattle's pro-athletes. He was a short fellow uh, in his mid-50s, a little bit balding, immaculately dressed in a suit, not a lab coat. And I think he was surprised and probably a little disappointed to see a middle-aged actress sitting in his exam room. He took a a cursory look at my x-rays and explained that, oh, you have osteoarthritis, and you have no cartilage left on on your knees. You are bone on bone. Did you know that that's some of the most excruciating pain there is? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no kidding. He also explained that I was a great candidate for total knee replacement surgery, but I was a little young. He mansplained that uh, this surgery would work, but uh, I was replaceable parts, and they wear out too, just like your regular uh, natural parts do, and you might want to wait a while. How long a while, I said. 20 years, he said nonchalantly. Hopelessness doesn't even begin to describe the tsunami of depression that was washing over me as I drove home. But I found my solution on late night television about a year later. I was having insomnia, flipping through the channels, and I happened on the grand rounds of the UW Medical Center. The doctor giving his presentation was an orthopedic surgeon whose specialty was knees, and he was describing this brand new procedure, minimally invasive quadriceps-sparing knee surgery. The advantage to the patient was a shorter recovery time and a much shorter time in the hospital. I was on the phone to his clinic the very next day. And through a series of appointments, I became quite the expert on knee anatomy I found out that this surgery was great for the condition I was suffering from, and best yet, this surgeon didn't care where where or when I had the surgery. His only advice was, don't have both knees done at the same time. Do them one at a time. My hospital stay was short as promised. The surgery went well, and I was sent home to do rehab. My best friend Larry came to stay with us that first week when I was home from the hospital so my wife could go back to work. And the home health care nurse who showed up was delightful. A plump, short brunette with a sweet smile and a caring disposition. She would gently coach me through a series of harrowing balancing and stretching exercises, encouraging me as I gingerly hobbled around the house. Oh, Gretchen, you're doing so well. Larry a six foot one former priest with an arched eyebrow and the sardonic delivery that only a drama queen can master had a decidedly more assertive approach. Bitch, get out of bed and do your rehab, he'd say every morning. (laughs) But Larry was the one who drove me to my post-surgical appointment and held my hand while the the nursery removed 27 surgical staples from my incision and he was the one who was cheering the loudest when I managed to make it down the hallway of the clinic cane-free for the first time. You know, actually mastering walking wasn't the hardest part of the whole thing. It was being able to flex my knee a full 90 degrees and completely straighten it out again. Maneuvers that were gonna become essential if I ever wanted to, well, put on a pair of pants or drive the car again, and there was pain. I don't know why I hadn't anticipated the pain. Did I think that popping in a new knee was going to be like changing the battery in a flashlight? Of course, the pain was different because this post-surgery pain would eventually go away, right? (laughs) I became an expert on the relative merits of gel packs versus crushed ice, and I looked forward to the biting cold when it would hit my knee after a particularly tough rehab session. But it was pain nonetheless. And I also developed a very intense fear of falling when I tried to walk without my cane. I was having this weird mind body disconnect. I had this one knee that wasn't repaired and that was unstable. And then I had this repaired knee, but I didn't trust it either. I mean, it was in me, but it wasn't of me. It was mine, but it it wasn't mine somehow. Uh, And I didn't know whether that would ever change. That's when the doubt started to creep in. What had I done? I mean, did I really think a replaceable part was the solution, and, and would I, could I have the stamina and the willpower to keep working through rehab those long hours of pain ahead of me? My new knees, yes, I had the second knee replacement about a year later, actually are nothing short of a miracle. The first time I went to a public restroom and sat down, no cane, no pain, I almost laughed out loud, (laughs) which would have been hard to explain to the adjoining stalls. Uh, And what's miraculous is I never think about them, except when I'm at the airport and have to go through one of those screening machines, and then I alert the screeners to my bionic parts so they're not surprised. My own personal superpower is I do things that are absolutely ordinary. I would be absolutely unachievable without these new knees, like climbing a ladder to hang my Christmas lights, or getting down on all fours, albeit with a knee pad, to dig in the garden, or balancing on one leg in a yoga class. Now, I admit that my tree pose is more quaking aspen than mighty oak, but (laughs) as the yogis say, it is practice, not perfection. (laughs) And when I found out earlier this year that osteoarthritis had taken all the cartilage out of both of my shoulders, (laughs) I looked forward with an eagerness, a willingness to have my first ever total shoulder replacement surgery, knowing that the surgery would restore my ability to move like a normal person and that my new apparatus would become simply another part of me, given enough persistence, patience, ice, and time. Thanks.
1: That was Gretchen Duma. Gretchen Duma is a stage, screen, and voice actor who has been working in theater for more years than she'll usually admit to. She has performed in Seattle, the Twin Cities, New York City, England, and on Zoom, thanks COVID. Also a playwright... Gretchen has several short works and two full-length plays under her belt. The Story Collider is so grateful to Renee and Gretchen for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider along with me, Managing Producer Misha Gajewski, Senior Podcast Editor Jen Chen, and with help from Education Director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, and Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Paula Croxon and Tracy Rowland and Kent Whipple and Emi Okikawa, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, Aaron Barker will be back hosting stories about borders and divisions. Until then, thanks for listening.